0: That's the thing about Nexium is very little of it is original. You know, yeah. all of these things were cross pollinating in the '60s. They've been repackaged thousands of times already. But this particular repackaging around Keith Raniere as this genius philosopher who's changing the world, like it was just cranked up to eleven version of the same thing that was sort yeah. of happening, you know, all through the decades.
1: This is Van Color. West Coast. My name is Moamir, and today on This Is Van Color, I'm joined by an investigative journalist based in Vancouver. She covers crime, drugs, cults, politics, and culture. Which automatically makes her one of the coolest people in this city. She is a former senior editor at Vice, a former associate editor at the Tie E, and a past contributor to Adbusters, McLean's, The Globe and Mail, and The Vancouver Sun. Her debut book, Don't Call It a Cult, is a bona fide blockbuster. It is an extremely detailed, well-reported, and evocative look at the infamous American sex cult Nexium. Listen, straight up, you have to read this book, and if you haven't picked it up, what the fuck are you waiting for? Keep this podcast running as you head down to your local bookstore to get your copy right now. She is here. She is Sarah Berman. Sarah, how are you?
0: Oh my God, I'm better after hearing that intro. Thank you so much, Mo. That's
1: My pleasure. It's nice to see you. I've been reading your book. It's incredible.
0: Thank you. I, yeah, I'm so glad to see it out in the world. It's a bit surreal <laughs> to see even see it on this desk, but uh, yeah, I, um, the feedback's been incredible. Um, I can't wait to talk about it with, you know, everyone who hears this <laughs> podcast.
1: <laughs> this is actually a challenging podcast for me because I don't want to spoil the incredible detail or the real life narrative that you weave together so eloquently and so thoughtfully. So, I'd like to explore some of the ideas that I started to reflect upon while reading the book. And so I hope whether people have read it already or are about to read it or midway through the book, this chat doesn't start or end with that. It's more of like an accompanying piece.
0: Cool. Yeah.
1: But we still have to like go through the basic story.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Let's do it.
1: Okay. So I'm going to go through the story and you let me know at the end if I missed any key parts. Sure. So there's this organization called Nexium, and it's actually spelled N-X-I-V-M, and it's kind of like this self-coaching, professional development, multi-level marketing pyramid scheme, and it's run by this guy named Keith Ranieri, who is like this messiah-like figure. And the whole scheme claimed to bring more joy in people's life, which is like basically the pitch for most self-help. And it had tens of thousands of members or people who had taken their classes, including Sheila Johnson, who is the co-founder of BET. There was an Enron executive, the daughter of former Mexican president Vicente Fox, Vancouver actress Kristen Kruk, and these people mostly just participated in the classes. But then there was also, most notably, Claire Bronfman, who is the heir to Seagram, the Canadian budget whiskey. But that company at one time also owned MCA Universal Studios and other business holdings. And there was also Smallville actor Allison Mack and Vancouverite and Battlestar Galactica actor Nikki Klein, who are actually married to each other now. And so within Nexium, those three, among others, belong to a secret society called DOS, Dominus Obsequious Sororium, which apparently means master over women. And Nexium recruited women who were being mentored into this group, DOS. And these women were quite literally branded with a cauterizing pen. They were blackmailed and basically forced into sexual slavery. So this is sex trafficking. And with Claire Bronfman in particular, Keith Ranieri again, the Messiah-like leader, who was also known as the Vanguard, basically insulated himself from women who tried to speak up. And he actually used the judicial system to go after the whistleblowers. And he was able to protect himself from prosecution for decades. And then in 2018, it all came crashing down when Keith Raniere was arrested and indicted in charges related to Nexium and DOS, including sex trafficking and conspiracy to commit forced labor. And your book actually starts at that arrest, so that's not really a spoiler. <laughs> is that a fair Cole's notes version of what happened?
0: I think that's a perfect summary, and it sounds just as unbelievable as it actually <laughs> is. Uh, yeah, that was actually part of what drew me to the story. You read sort of the headlines for it, and and it doesn't make sense. You think that can't possibly be what women actually experience. This mm-hmm. has to be some sort of I don't know, uh, a reporter kind of stacking the deck or, or or making something up because it doesn't seem like it would just pass a regular reality test. Um, right. But then when you start hearing from the women and you think, oh, gosh, this is actually even more intense uh, than than what's reported. You can't really fit in um, just the the day-to-day cruelties um, and just the insidiousness of, uh, mm-hmm. Of, of going from this hopey, changey kind of helping you, yeah, achieve your goals to <laughs> suddenly being in this very controlled uh, environment where you can't choose who you talk to, you can't choose who you eat, or <laughs> you can't choose what you eat or, mm. or, or when you sleep even. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you did a great job. Well, it
1: is bananas. And again, I don't think that synopsis ruins the book because the detail of how you get there and how these pieces all fit together is really what makes the story so incredible. I mean, there have been documentaries, there's an HBO docu-series, there's a Lifetime film, there's an E! True Hollywood story. CBC's first season of The Uncover Podcast was based on this. And now your book, which I would say is probably the definitive media for this story. Like, it brings everything together. Because I had seen some of the docu-series, I had listened to the podcast, and I feel like your book has so much more detail, it has all the detail of this story. So I'm curious, like, what is it about this story that is so compelling? Is it more of a freak show, or does it say something about us, or is it like Nexium and it's all about this compelling yet ultimately horrific figure, Keith Raniere?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's almost a combination of all those things. I do <laughs> feel like this group does reflect back our sort of social vulnerabilities. I think it is kind of a mirror for us. Uh, mm-hmm. What what information rabbit holes, you know, our our vulnerable people are kind of getting caught up in. I think everything that this story exposed um, is relevant to a more day to day life, even though it does sound really it's so out bananas.
1: There. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but but. For example, the sort of control tactics are very relevant to how domestic abusers work. Mm -hmm. And so that's an extremely common sort of scenario. And especially in a pandemic, you have women who might have their information coming in and out being controlled by somebody. Mm -hmm. They might have, yeah, not be able to choose who they speak to. Um, And actually in Canada, we have uh, coercive control legislation, mm. uh, a private members bill that's currently up in the air. So, so there are, I, I would say, real world applications. I, I do think it stimulates thought in in many interesting areas. Um, but there's no doubting the fact that this is a very out there sort of example of all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully people start thinking about um, power and control in in new ways.
1: It is interesting that you bring up that idea of an abusive relationship because I remember when I was first introduced to the story, I had some friends and we were talking about it because we all listened to the CBC podcast originally. And one of them even said, like, they weren't in a, you know, terribly abusive relationship, but they were in a slightly controlling relationship prior to that. And they said, Oh, you know, listening to what Keith Raniere was doing it's it's a lot of the same patterns of control and gaslighting, like making you feel like you're the crazy one if you don't, you know, fall in line or if you're if you don't get with the program. The amount of research and detail in this book certainly requires, I think, an obsession, though, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so you've sort of talked about why this story is compelling. But for you personally, what was it about this story that made you want to keep diving deeper and deeper?
0: Yeah. So I think I read some of the same headlines that everybody else did in 2017. You had the New York Times with a huge story about this secret sorority with the branding and blackmail. Um, And I quickly sort of put together that Wow, some of the people in my Vancouver networks were, in fact, part of this group. Some of hmm. them only took the introductory courses. Some had moved to Albany to be part of the acting program. Oh, that
1: they went that far. Yeah, yeah. Wow.
0: There was there was um, an exodus a little bit uh, of people going over to Albany to help develop the acting program in hmm. 2013 and 14. Um, and, and you had, yeah, um, friends of mine who went to high school with some of the main uh, folks who were named as co-conspirators in the trial. Oh. So I was really trying to figure out in the beginning how to connect. You know, this Vancouver identity, which is progressive and vegan and maybe rides bikes and is really hopey-changey trying to save the world. Mm -hmm. And this really dark, you know, unbelievable sort of secret sorority thing uh, where people did think they were being empowered, but there were were these clear, you know, just, I mean, yeah, a a jury of his peers found it to be sex trafficking. So Mm -hmm. just putting that together seemingly incompatible facts. I, I really needed to solve that in my head. I just felt like it was unsolvable <laughs> for so long. Sure. Um so yeah, I think that did fuel a bit of an obsession that got me um yeah, talking to about as many people as I could, even the ones who were just on the periphery and just thought it was, you know, a kooky a goals program, right? <laughs> you know, where people had lots of smiles and, you know, sometimes they even did internally joke about being a cult, but it was a good cult, you know, where right. they drank green juice and, <laughs> and they, you know, were very generous to each other right. and they helped each other achieve their goals. So,
1: so that's interesting because I didn't realize that it did have this personal connection to you at least on the periphery you, like you weren't personally pitched to, no, to go to these classes or anything no i never pitched right?
0: yeah. it, it felt at enough at a distance that i could take my reporter's notebook and just sort of storm <laughs> in but you had yeah like roommates of my friends or wow. you know Friends of mine went to high school with some of the players. So when I started looking just on social media, doing preliminary research, I was seeing, you know, Facebook was showing me all yeah. the all the sort of connections. And 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 some of these are sort of movers and shakers in Vancouver. So mm-hmm. I I thought that was super fascinating. Um
1: so let's get into that element though, because and you've already touched on this, there is this obvious Vancouver connection. Kristen Kruk. I mean, yeah. she only took the courses. And then, more infamously, Nikki Klein, plus Sarah Edmondson, who helped blow the whistle on this whole story. And apparently, hundreds of members left Nexium after she went public with it. Is there something about Nexium, this huge cult that was based in New York, that is so Vancouver?
0: I mean, <laughs> I think that Vancouver is full of idealists i think we all dream of a better world i mean that's a generalization but you certainly find a lot of them here they're they're working in you know uh social justice or or environmental sort of sectors um and that's who this group really did appeal to their their whole sort of marketing was around helping change the world helping Mm -hmm. evolve society so that we could all be more ethical people um (laughs) And I know, yeah, it sounds funny, <laughs> given the context, but uh, when you were just pitched on it and the only information you had was, you know, someone like Sarah Edmondson gently explaining to you how you could achieve your goals, it didn't sound out there. It didn't sound ironic. It sounded like, okay, maybe that's something I would try. Maybe <laughs> it, maybe it did sort of sound a little extreme at times, you know, like people were doing these very persistent um self-punishing sort of uh programs on themselves. But um, And this
1: was just the Nexium part. Like we we're not even talking about this the was, darker side, the DOS. So stuff.
0: even as far as yeah, 2012 you did start to have these elements of penance. Hmm. Um introduced to the regular i mean these were upper level classes Mm -hmm. so i feel like yeah there was levels of exposure people who just took the first introductory course they weren't seeing anything other than you know yeah trying to get rid of your limiting beliefs was the main (laughs) focus right (laughs) so people would all be asked you know to raise their hand and whoever raises their hand the highest you know um wins the challenge and Mm -hmm. and and then at the end of it uh, they'd ask you why didn't you stand on your chair right like this is a limiting belief that's keeping you sitting in your chair Hmm. reaching your hand up you can go higher so it it was very motivational speaker like very in the in the realm of tony robbins you know um and that's what made nexium hide in plain sight was how normal and you know Precedented it was, you know. It 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 did compare to many other leadership trainings, mm-hmm. at least on the ground level. And then you had all this sort of selection and conditioning happening, where over a period of years, uh, women are suddenly cutting off their families hmm. and and finding themselves in, in a lot more precarious of a position where they're they're sort of being kept in line with coaching. And so yeah, over a period of maybe a decade, someone would find themselves so embedded that they would potentially be pledging um, their entire life's savings, everything they own and all their important relationships to devote their lives to this one guy.
1: Yeah. When we talk about this connection to Vancouver, what I find fascinating is that you highlighted this idea of Vancouver being idealistic. Because I think Vancouver has this split personality, this dichotomy of like idealism, but also extreme cynicism. Right.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, I definitely see both sides of that coin. For yeah,
1: sure. and the the idealistic side is, you know, there are a lot of organizations in different areas that, you know pitch to make the city better, make the world better. And then when you start digging into it, it's like, oh, this is just a front for real estate development or, you know, big business in some other way. And then that's where you get the the cynicism on the other side. And yeah, that's interesting because I, I, I was a big self-help guy at one point. I was just reading a lot. I never got involved in any organizations, but I could see a lot of people who may be coming out of school especially coming out of school at a certain time. I came out of school in 2007, not the greatest time to be in the job market. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're looking for direction. And you, and you feel like, I feel like there's a lot of that in Vancouver as well. And that either creates this idealism or it creates this cynicism.
0: Yeah, I feel like idealism is an important ingredient because you can... It's corruptible in some mm. in some strange way. Um, actually, this concept of noble cause corruption is is sort of new to me. I don't actually include it in the book, but I think it describes Nexium well. The thing is, we're not going to ever do sort of things. Um, we're not going to harm others for a reason that's that doesn't make sense to us. Mm. So, so to enforce these sort of hierarchical um, I guess control programs for lack of a better word you need to have people on side with an idealistic goal like right. they, th- it needs to be for the right reasons <laughs> you know in their minds so that's why you're attracting idealistic people because they're attracted to the change the world message and they're willing to sort of make sacrifices, whether they're personal sacrifices or, you know, in the way they treat others, to essentially further the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting thing where, um, well, it gets you to a point where up is down, basically. Where yeah. <laughs> there's so many up is down moments in this book um, and in my research as well. The bottom kept falling out of the story because, you know, some other... Revelation would come either during trial or, Mm -hmm. or from some of the women that I spoke to.
1: When we look at Nexium, there is clearly evidence that it was a multi-level marketing pyramid scheme, and and certainly in terms of recruitment as well, right? Like how they had to recruit new members. Absolutely. But also then this idea of a patriarchal figure at the top, and a lot of their practices and teachings and courses were about destroying identity and then rebuilding it collateralizing money that is then forfeited if certain goals aren't met and that's before again you get into that really dark evil shit with with dos but even the stuff with Nexium you kind of raise an eyebrow at don't you like i'm just oh, yeah. wondering like how do we <laughs> distinguish a multi-level marketing scheme from a cult because there was culty things in Nexium already or are they the same thing
0: I mean, I think they all use the same kinds of elements of influence especially, right? So you're trying to recruit people to a certain ideal and you're potentially using influence, undue or otherwise, to get them as part of your organization. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think um, there's a lot of multi-level marketing sort of companies out there um, that do use cult-like tactics and they, and they usually do peg it to motivation, you know, so it's got this corporate sort of sheen to it where it doesn't <laughs> seem as culty um but but it's got that um system of influence going. Um and and yeah, so I, I I do think the lines are gray. Certainly um even just defining sort of what a cult is and what a pyramid scheme is, the FTC doesn't you know, have clear definitions of what what's an okay sort of chain based marketing, and what's um, what what should be banned and illegal. So, mm-hmm. and I think these kinds of organizations thrive in that gray area, that undefined space. You can have one expert say, "Oh, yes, this checks all the boxes," and then you can <laughs> you know hire another consultant or a religious studies prof to come and say, you know, the exact opposite. So where, where there's debate, there's, you know, organizations of various sort of harm, hiding in plain sight.
1: Harm, hiding in plain sight. Okay. I think that's a good way of maybe looking at it. And, and I'll tell you, and I'll be honest, you know, many years ago, I was a big adherent to Kundalini yoga. And friends used to joke that I was in a cult or I was susceptible to joining a cult. And Teresa Campbell, my instructor, who has actually been on this podcast twice, very wise, spiritual woman, she offered, you know, teachings about grief and she offered ceremonies around rites of passage. And I used to joke back and I used to say, yeah, if Teresa started a cult, I would for sure join. (laughs) But in reality, beyond the cost of the kundalini classes... I wasn't really obliged to do anything else, right? I wasn't even obliged to bring people. I did convert a few people, but not not by force. No one asked me to do that. And there was no MLM scheme, right? Right. And so, and I know you just said like there, it's a gray area, but is there a cult checklist? And you talk about this idea of harm hiding in plain sight, but like, are there things you should ask yourself if someone tells you, hey, that group you're a part of is probably a cult.
0: Right. Well, and first of all, I've also done years of kundalini yoga. On oh, really? Off, so okay. I, I And I understand <laughs> it's got kooky elements. And so anytime there's. Um, you get it. You yeah, get it. exactly. Yeah. Chanting, you know, yeah. some people can get uncomfortable pretty quickly. Um, but I think, yeah, there's definitely things we can look at. Uh, Certainly, different experts have sort of different checklists, uh, but there needs to be sort of transparency. Do you know what you're joining? Mm. And a lot of, you know, cults and more harmful organizations hide. You know, they have some kind of front organization. People think it's for social justice, and and then there's some other purpose. Usually, some one guy's self-interest is the actual (laughs) purpose behind it. Um, You definitely have information being controlled, right? That's a really red flag when they say, you know, don't read the news, you know, you can't Mm. read these, you know, don't um, talk to your family about it, they wouldn't understand. If you're not getting outside information and feedback about what's going on, that's definitely a huge red flag. Um, if if there is sort of emotional control, if you can be dressed down just for feeling or questioning, that's that's a pretty big red flag. So hmm. so if your emotions are being and behaviors are being controlled. Um, yeah, and then if if it's centered on one guy, that's also a pretty good <laughs> red flag. So, yeah, whose personal interests are involved? Who's gaining? And if there is, you know, a Kundalini teacher who has people at their feet all the time mm. massaging them and and doing favors for them, that is starting to look kind of personality based and and I would ask questions about it. And then if you get a shunning answer, right? That's another element where if you're shunning ex-members and critics, um, that's starting to look way more like a harmful, undue influence type of situation. Right. And so most of those
1: elements are distinguishable and you can kind of make them out. But the first one that you mentioned about a front group that's hiding something else, like you can't really tell because it's hidden, right? Right. (laughs) It it reveals
0: itself over time. I know. And and that's why you do get some smart, sensible people into, you know, groups like this. You know, the yoga community is not exempt, Mm -hmm. right? You have those documentaries of Bikram and yeah, I mean, any but that again, is a time where you have an extravagant leader who made extravagant claims about his history and life, and you had this um sort of just all kinds of praise being heaped on this one person and you mm-hmm. kind of you can kind of see that happening um and if if they're just taking large amounts of money, that seems to be also you know like if people are um. Yeah, just turning over all of their possessions uh, uh, to a group, that's also sort of a red flag. Like, who's collecting? Who's benefiting from, from what's going on?
1: One thing I find fascinating is the use of the term red pill or red pilling as a verb. And it's from the Matrix, and it's the whole idea of, like, do you choose the false, comfortable reality or do you choose the truth? And Nexium also used this terminology as well. But what I find fascinating is that it's really become quite popular with the alt-right, white nationalist, pickup artist culture, like toxic white, toxic male stuff. And so there's this weird intersection of fringe white guys weaponizing this concept of red-pilling. And it's like, it's a fucking movie. (laughs) I I get it. Like, it's the, you know, modern Plato's cave or whatever, but it's a Hollywood movie. Why is this idea of red pilling from this one blockbuster movie so attached to these really toxic ideologies and communities?
0: Super fascinating question. Yeah, I mean, basically... It's a way to introduce a concept that everything you've read and seen is wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's some secret truth that only we can tell you. So, again, it's establishing this us and them and, like, cut off the outside world because it doesn't know. You know, it's a facade um, mentality. Um, and that's how you can get somebody to put belief above all fact or reason Mm -hmm. right so they're not going to be judging you know what they see and encounter with reason and skepticism they're going to say everything is a dream world it it doesn't (laughs) um cohere you know and so yeah i think this sort of mentality does kind of get people to abandon their senses Mm um and and what makes it so alluring though is we are sort of in a low um quality information environment right so you almost want to reject reality at this point right <laughs> like it, it you can be thirsty for some alternative meaning that that that's simple and all encompassing all you need to do is whatever if it's jordan peterson it's make your bed i'm not sure i haven't read the the um
1: Something about lobsters. Yeah, I
0: don't there's know. something about <laughs> lobsters in there somewhere. Um, yeah, you have you have these sort of toxic um, subcultures mm. online that just sort of act as a feedback loop on themselves, right? I would also put QAnon in in that sure. category, where you have people seeking truth in all the weirdest, uh, like not. Incredible places, and <laughs> rejecting anything that counters that narrative, right? Yeah. You know, there's just an excuse built in to be able to reject any any sort of criticism or outside information.
1: And just, I guess, on a human level, we all kind of like to feel like we're part of something special, right? And I guess that that's where the conspiracy stuff intersects as well, is like we like to think that we're part of a special group or we have special access to knowledge or we're part of an inner circle. I mean, that kind of feels good, right? That's a sense of power, isn't it?
0: Totally. And I think actually that was what Sarah Edmondson was really good at, was cultivating this tight-knit community of VIPs, Mm -hmm. right? Like, (laughs) there were some famous people involved, you know, and they had long IMDb pages. And maybe if you join this group, you too could have a long IMDb page. Mm. Um, It was like being invited to an Oscar party, one of the women told me, right? Yeah. And so when you have that exclusivity and it's associated with success, um, yeah, I think there is an allure there. Um, I also think some people would have an incredibly adverse reaction to that, too. You know, like some people are allergic to schmoozing, and I get that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it it did create this sort of insidery, secret knowledge Mm -hmm. um, kind of dynamic. And and then when you looked out and saw people just reacting to things sort of normally and not having these secret special concepts to sort of uh, unpack with, they 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 did think that they had these special secret tools, the secret to success and happiness.
1: Right. I'm also being reminded right now, and I don't know if it was Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street in particular, but there was a similar if it was either him or something very similar in terms of a Wall Street type scheme where they were pushing junk stocks and it was all a scam. And the organization was telling their young recruits, their young stock traders. Like, if your parents or friends can't believe how much money you're making and they start questioning, cut them off. Right. Right? And so, again, it's that financialization of this financial scheme mixed with kind of this culty approach of, like, you know, they're going to be seeing you doing so well and they're going to ask questions and as soon as they do that just cut them off they mean nothing <laughs>
0: right yeah i feel like i'm seeing the patterns everywhere these systems of power and influence and control um and you almost want to turn it off <laughs> in your brain because you're like um yeah you get uncomfortable really quickly with things that other people might accept a little easier i i guess um that was what i was trying to achieve with this book was show that this this isn't about you know, individuals who sort of messed up their lives or Mm -hmm. got caught up in something weird. This was a system of control and influence, and it worked in really insidious ways, in ways that would capture, you know, friends and family of you and me. You know, it it wasn't... um, these weren't people who were weak- willed. These were strong and outgoing sort of women who got caught up in it. and And when we start to see these sort of systems, um, yeah, we we know more how to disentangle ourselves from from them and and to question them and to mm-hmm. hopefully implement, you know, transparency and accountability in them
1: and going back to that idea of red pilling, which right. I also find very fascinating in terms of the groups that that use it. Even when we look at this case, there's this weird, racist, misogynist way that Keith Raniere convinced women, first of all, he convinced them to be his slaves, right? And then also that they were reincarnated Nazis. Yes. (laughs)
0: Yes. <laughs> right. Well, so th-
1: and so then it goes back to red pilling being used in you know white supremacist groups and pickup artistry and all that stuff where it's like really racist and also really misogynistic too, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I think with Keith Raniere, he just did want to exercise, you know, almost the sci-fi style of control over the people that were in his influence. So, yeah, you did have him achieving sort of outrageous feats of belief uh the nazi thing was in sort of the early 2000s he had yeah convinced some of his close um confidants and girlfriends uh that they were nazis in their past lives even even though some of them were jewish right Um, you know so obviously a huge feat of sort of Mind control. I don't like using that um, terminology because it does sound sci-fi, but um, I do think he was sort of experimenting how far he could go. And in fact, some of the, you know, naked images, one of which was an underage girl, this was led to a child porn charge uh, at trial. I don't think that's a spoiler either. He named it Studies. That was the file name on his computer. So. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm giving this away for you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm a (laughs) a third of the way in. I'm not there yet.
0: (laughs) You're going to come to this and you're going to realize that, yeah, he was trying to um, extend his power and control to the absolute maximum. um, And he was doing that through, yeah, these sort of blackmail tactics. So even Hmm. though DOS wasn't created until 2015. He was implementing these kinds of uh, elements, you know, 20 years ago. So, yeah, I'm not sure where I was going with that. But, yeah, just really dark stuff um, definitely has parallels to other organizations that sort of peddle in these alternate information. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Rainiering himself was a bit of a split personality in terms of his persona, right? Because on one hand, he was presenting this like ultra-rational, progressive, evidence-based stuff, and then on the other hand, you had this sci-fi spiritual stuff that was incongruent with the rational stuff that he was pushing with Nexium, right?
0: Totally. He had so many covers. He also claimed he lived a church mouse existence and, you know, had no <laughs> money or possessions of his own. He was a renunciate, so he right. didn't have any sexual contact, allegedly, you know. <laughs> Even so, though he had
1: all these girlfriends. Exactly. This, this harem. Right,
0: yeah, it, he had twelve to twenty at a time wow. uh, for pretty much the whole time that Nexium existed, and yeah, I think that's the thing with this group is up was down all the time. that sort of informs the title as well. Uh, don't call it a cult. you know there there were such strong arguments and deflections for why this group was definitely not a cult and and people internalized it and even years after, They'd left. Sarah Edmondson was still afraid to call Nexium a cult. Mm-hmm. She thought she could be chased down in the courts. Um, so, yeah, it, I think there was just so much misdirection and redefinition, and that that comes in part from the sort of thought reform built into the courses themselves. All the classes were sort of redefining basic concepts like good and bad. So you really had people saying words that sound like things that mean the same thing to me and you, Mm -hmm. but in their minds, it means something completely different.
1: What is it about Keith Raniere himself that made him so seductive? Because as your book outlines... He was like this very early on. Yeah. And he developed it. It just got stronger and stronger in terms of his prowess. There's a story about Gina Hutchinson, which is one of the really sad examples of a young woman who was caught in this web, but also her family was caught in his web. So what is it about him or was about him that, I don't know, made him so attractive? Because you look at his photo.
0: Yeah, there's not much there. <laughs> he looks like
1: <laughs> Jared Leto's dad or something. I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's generous. But yeah, he. Um, I think he listened. And, and he listened for people's insecurities and what was most important to them. And he did leverage those things in, in ways... Um, that, that just encouraged more and more participation. Um, I think in the later years, he just had this army of women doing... The work for him to sort of talk him up and make sure that he had this mythology around him Mm -hmm. and and make sure that before they ever met, that they had the right ideas about him, you know, going in. So it was almost an engineered charisma at this point. Right, and
1: that was the thing. He wasn't necessarily saying all this stuff about him. He was having these women tell other women about how smart he is and spiritual he is, depending on the situation, right?
0: Yeah, he was almost an elusive figure at the Nexium sort of events, you know, like Hmm. he would come out for talks at V Week, which was his birthday celebration every (laughs) August. Uh, But then he would sort of fade back into the background and you really had to be special to get one-on-one time with him, hmm. um, and so that was really talked up. Again, it's just almost marketing and sales tactics to sort of talk him up and and make sure that people continued to have those beliefs. So they were coached on on their ideas about Keith Raniere, and if they had suspicions, that was on them. That was their insecurity. That was their issue that they needed to work on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you just had just an inner circle doing so much of the work to make sure all of his objectives were achieved. Uh, he didn't even have to do much. He just sort of <laughs> sat around. Um, yeah, d- couldn't even string a sentence together sometimes. I just, really? yeah, it was in awe. Oh well, yeah, I've watched so much of his forums, his lectures, his, his sort of private uh, lessons. And I don't think this guy is a genius philosopher, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he sort of has a robotic way of speaking, Hmm. and I think he intentionally sort of speaks in a confusing way, Um, which I kind of get into in the book, but um, yeah, maybe I'll leave that there.
1: I understand that a lot of these people, all these women were being groomed to see him in this light, in this Messiah-like light, but he had to start from somewhere. So when you're going through all this footage of him, is there something that you're seeing in him that, that you go, oh, this guy could have been a great politician or, oh, I see why he was a great salesman. You know, was there something special or seductive in, in how he carried himself?
0: I mean, I think probably he could have been a great car salesman. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that, that is more what comes to mind more so than politician. Um, because he just wasn't um, – he yeah he definitely didn't speak in in facts which which surprised me because yeah he had this sort of scientific uh, biography that was pushed um, and in fact his followers were like you got to really tone down on the weird uh, spiritual stuff right you know you're hmm. supposed to be a scientist here um, so yeah I think he just did dial into. Uh, what was important to a specific person. And that's why this story does sound so all over the place is because the levers and hooks that he got into people were so different and personalized, right? Like you had some women who were into uh, past life theories Hmm. and, and then you had some women who were just very scientific in their thinking and really thought that he was changing the world through science. So... It, it's incoherent as a whole, um, but my job, yeah, was to try and make that coherent. At least with 300 pages, you can you know yeah. do a little bit more of that shading in the gray area. So it
1: does sound like, at his core, he was really good at being a chameleon in terms of reflecting what the other person perhaps needs.
0: Yeah. I think, again, he just listened very, very carefully, hmm. and he was asking them, literally, like, what would be the worst thing in the world to ever happen to you, you know? oh, so losing your family is the worst thing that you can imagine. Okay, well, maybe family is something you need to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it did sort of come from them, you know, saying, this is how you can manipulate me. And then him sort of implementing that in in sort of roundabout ways where it doesn't seem like it's coming from him. It's coming from, you know, the coaches that are, that are supposed to be helping right. people achieve their goals.
1: Yeah. When we look at, Cult leaders, Jim Jones, David Koresh, Charles Manson, and they're not all white, but they are all male, largely. (laughs) There's also Osho Rajneesh, Shoko Asahara, arguably you could say leaders of terrorist groups. We talked about Bikram as well. Is there a common thread amongst these cult leaders?
0: I mean certainly all of them have tried to have extravagant sort of origin stories um definitely there's a streak of narcissism that sure. has to be yeah. to to be cultivating that kind of amount of praise
1: and and with that like clearly people who are obsessed with power and
0: control <laughs> exactly yeah i think there is a personality type i mean i don't it's not my position to sort of pathologize, but I do think— It can be on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely think that experts who sort of look into these things seem to see the same things. It's, it's basically, yeah, malignant narcissism. Hmm.
1: Was there something unique about Keith when we compare him to the common <laughs> the common cult leader?
0: Well, I think he did put a corporate sheen on it, right? So, mm-hmm. he tried to minimize the weirdiness on the outside. Mm. So, th- if you look at it as an onion with many layers, the outside layer looked very normal, mm. right? You know, it was a business advocacy group, basically, right? And you did have the CEOs sort of endorsing it with testimonials. Um, when you got a little, a few layers in, you started to see kooky stuff. Um, and and certainly over time, it got even more sort of intense. Um, but I think making it seem just corporate making making practices that are shouldn't be anywhere near a business seem like business was sort of what his spin um at least at first in the early 2000s achieved um but i think by the late you know 2010s and and into 2020 definitely um Certainly, as soon as the big news about DOS broke, um, people know exactly what this is. Yeah. But yeah, I think um, even early 2017, um, the Wikipedia page for Keith Raniere was "business person" <laughs> oh, <laughs> was wow. the main thing, right? So, wow. so I think there was a sort of cloaking, cloaking kookiness in in corporate sheen.
1: Mm-hmm. There was obviously a lot of money involved at its height. How many members are we talking about in terms of Nexium?
0: So I would split it into two categories because you have about 17,000 people who have just taken the introductory class and have usually gone on with their lives and have not perhaps thought much of it after that. Sure. Um, In Vancouver, you had about 200 to 300 regular members Hmm. who were, you know, going to classes uh, maybe even had a year-long membership um you had about that in Albany um it would expand expand and contract and then you had an even bigger center in um in Mexico so Mexico City had hmm. hundreds of regular paying members wow going back
1: to that idea of the corporate sheen and him getting away with things that obviously you normally wouldn't see in businesses and definitely shouldn't see in businesses. One interesting point that you raise is that when we talk about DOS, it was mostly white women who would openly subject themselves to being quote-unquote slaves. And the only thing that came to mind that really parallels this is maybe how some young, again, mostly white men and women might be slaves in fraternity, or sorority culture. And it's almost like this white privilege of not being triggered or being grossly offended enabled them to be subjected to that kind of treatment. And I'm not victim-blaming by any means. I'm just saying like that word in particular might have raised some red flags with perhaps women of color.
0: Absolutely.
1: Is this just a coincidence, or is there a reason why DOS, the secret society group within Nexium, was so dominated by white women?
0: I don't think it's a coincidence. I think Nexium as a whole had a I guess representation problem that they sort of recognized that th- there was sort of a white and white passing hmm. sort of demographic that really became lifers in the group. Um I do think that, you know, people of color they might attend a class and and see the vibe and and feel uncomfortable because oftentimes people were just signing up for you know, struggle and oppression, basically, right? Like, why would you sign up for pain? Um, (laughs) Some people, that just is not the vibe they're looking for, which I get. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's hard to answer exactly these questions. But yeah, I think there was definitely a selection and definitely a pre... um, What would I call that? Yeah, you do have to come from a place of comfort, uh, to to see oppression as abstract and not something literally that's happening to you every day, mm-hmm. I think if you haven't experienced racism firsthand, maybe you are more willing to accept such abhorrent historically terminology. Mm-hmm. I mean, but yeah, it was it was uncomfortable actually broaching those questions because you know it it does take a lot of inner looking to sort of see that. I don't think. That was being seen on the surface. And I think the people who have stayed loyal to DOS, there is one black woman, uh, and she's definitely, I, I can say with some certainty, she has been kept as a sort of symbol, right? So she's being coached into staying with the group and and saying, you know, I'm not a victim. I chose to do this. And yeah, that's sort of really important to the... Nexium loyalist story. So yeah, it is complicated, um, but certainly I think you're right. I think you have the right instinct about there being sort of a predisposition to this um, that somebody from a wealthy background is is not going to see the same red flags that somebody, a, a person of color especially, would see.
1: Is doll still a thing? Like we know that Keith Ranieri is sent away, but does it still exist?
0: Well. So, there are former DOS members. So, I, I okay. don't think they're doing the, the practices that they were doing before. Sure. Uh, but there is a group of women who have tried to launch a sort of PR campaign uh, to show their side of the story and to basically cast doubt on all of the women who testified. And especially, they don't like Sarah Edmondson. They think she is a liar and a vow breaker. So so they are out there in the media, and it Mm. includes Nikki Klein, who we discussed earlier. Um, And so that's, I mean, that just reflects their beliefs. So they've held on to their beliefs doesn't change the facts of what happened as much as they'd like that to be the case um but yeah i think i've sort of stayed away too much from delving into that just because they could potentially find themselves on a healing journey at any moment i think some of them have sort of disappeared from the videos recently um which suggests maybe that they are questioning um so and yeah there's also a credibility issue there like they were willing to lie um, to the new york times and others um so you really don't want to hold up you know somebody who's being so loyal as to be ready to lie mm-hmm. um in your reporting um i was just so scared of of doing that so sure. yeah that's why you don't see as much of that in the book
1: no that's fair so very recently, in episode 122 of this podcast with Vivian Kay, and also a bit in episode 109 with Dr. Amanda Watson, we discussed some of the toxicity of some elements of self-help culture. These Nexium DOS women may have just as easily been coaxed into Landmark or Tony Robbins programs, which can use techniques to find ruin. And you see this in Scientology as well. And basically what that means is they really break people down. And sometimes they shame people. And like I said, I I used to be a big self-help guy. I was reading a ton. But I could never get to that extreme end of, let's completely break myself down and just rebuild from scratch. What is so appealing that some of us subject ourselves to this? Like, is it an exploitation of depression or self-loathing? Like, why would anyone want to completely erase their identity in order to build a new one?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people who find these sort of really extreme groups are coming at it in a time of transition. So they've either lost a family member or have moved or have maybe renounced some sort of faith. And so they're already doing that work of building a new identity. And so to have that process sort of acknowledged, like, yes, we'll help you get rid of who you were before and start a new life, um, that that can happen to almost anybody. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's necessarily a socioeconomic group or even a mental health profile that that fits but if somebody's in a time of transition already before they meet some of these groups I think that's when when they're most susceptible when they're most willing to sort of hand over their entire identity and say yeah tell me what's wrong with me um Sometimes it is at a ton- at a low point, mm-hmm. uh, but I think a lot of the women who found Nexium were sort of moving up the chain. They were successful mm-hmm. in some ways, um, and they just wanted to level up, and that's what they thought that they were getting.
1: Right. And so maybe you'll disagree here, but I almost find like some of these groups have this idea, and they might not say it explicitly, but it's the idea of like you're not enough. <laughs> is that what Team is doing? Is that what these groups are effectively doing? Or are they convincing you of something else?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly what they sort of latch on to. And I do think women as well are sort of socialized to accept that a little bit mm. more, that, hey, maybe I'm the problem here. Um, maybe I need to change. Um, and so, yeah, I I do think that little voice is sort of in everybody's head, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not enough. And, and if, they can sort of put a microphone to that and uh, get it really, you know, loud in people's heads and say, oh, by the way, we have the solution. You know, that can be a really effective process. I think in terms of finding the ruin... Nexium waited. They wouldn't do it in the pitch process, but at the end of an intensive, that's essentially what you would get. You would hmm. be stripped down, um, told what your inner deficiencies are. And some people, they would just say, no. I'm I'm good. Like <laughs> I can sort of sort myself out. I don't need you to tell me what's wrong with me. But a lot of people, they were ready for it. They thought it felt like a band-aid being ripped off mm. and and at least you've been able to sort of see the wound <laughs> inside you. Um but yeah, it's it's different for everybody and not everybody is predisposed to sort of accept someone else's accep- uh, sort of assessment of your shortcomings.
1: Super easy question to to wrap it all up. Why are cults so attractive?
0: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I've been trying to ask myself this question too because uh, it's it's not an easy question. Because <laughs> no,
1: the, I'm joking. It's I don't think there is a, a, a definitive answer, but just based on everything you've researched with Nexium, like again, we can on one hand concede, like, oh wow. Anyone can get caught up in stuff like this, but then on the other hand, we look at it and go, "This is bananas. How could anyone get caught up in this?" And so what is it about cults that are that draw people at the end of the day? Is it because is it the opportunity of catching someone in a transitory period, as you said, Is it that figure that that, that needs to be there, some some cult of personality? Is it a combination of all of these things?
0: Right. Oh, so I sort of took your question a little differently. So people get attracted to it, I think, because they do have simple answers to life's problems, right? Like people who don't like ambiguity, I think, are maybe attracted to this this kind of, you know, closed loop logic. Um, that that's one element. Um, I thought your question was more like, why are we as a culture obsessed with these stories? Right? Oh, like, no. Why are we all watching Vikram and, and Wild Wild Country documentaries and Nexium documentaries? That's the question that I'm I'm left with because okay. I realize the uh, cult movie industrial complex is getting larger and larger oh, yeah. by the day. So. Um, this yeah. is going to
1: be turned into a movie for sure <laughs> uh,
0: I mean I think there's enough uh documentaries out there about this um but yeah you're right it's it's always a, an evolving story you could see you could see it going somewhere but um yeah I think that's the harder question and maybe it is because we have uh, it just digs down into basic questions about, Free will, you know, how much is self determined? How much does our environment determine for us? Mm. You know, like, and and there, there's no again, it's just a gray area. There's no defined line between this is what I consented to you, and this is what was imposed on me by a particular culture or subculture. Um, I think, yeah all of society sort of has these elements in it. And and so to see it in such a black and white and and upside down format is is so disorienting, but it's also, it tells us about ourselves.
1: Well, I love this stuff. I find it fascinating. And again, we've kind of gone full circle here because to go back to my very first question, I don't think it's a freak show that makes it so appealing. I think for me at least, when I heard the story, I mean, obviously there's this sensationalism and gratuitous nature of of what's happening, but I'm reading it going, could I ever be susceptible to this at my weakest most uh, for lack of a better word lost or just not having direction could i have been susceptible to to this to be subjugated to something like this and would i be able to find a way out or would i be fully you know indoctrinated <laughs> and i think your book is is so brilliant in, in telling the story and there's a lot of characters right like it's not a simple ABC logic. It's it's a lot of things that are happening all at once, and, and it's very easy to follow, very easy to read, and I found it to evoke a lot of that introspection for me personally.
0: Oh, I'm so glad.
1: Aside from picking up the book, which hopefully the listener was doing as they were listening to this podcast, <laughs> what is your call to action?
0: My call to action? Well, um, definitely look for uh, transparency and accountability in any of the organizations, you know, or even yeah, in the family structure, some of these elements can come to exist. Um, so yeah, I just think be, having eyes open to personal influence and control dynamics is so important. And um, yeah, I hope uh, I hope people start asking those questions.
1: And where did we land on Kundalini yoga?
0: <laughs> I think it's great and fun, personally.
1: <laughs> I love it. Sarah, this was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. People, did you pick up the book? Don't call it a cult. It's an instant national bestseller. It is riveting, stunning, and honestly, a haunting debut of our guest today. She is brilliant. She is Sarah Berman. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.